Hi there, my name is Matt Furness and this is The Culture Hack, a video and podcast series that captures experiences and life lessons from those who know culture best. The goal? To help you to understand, design and change your company culture. Thanks for tuning in. Hi everyone and welcome to The Culture Hack. It's Matt Furness here from Click Culture Consulting and I'm joined today by Paul Teasdale. Paul is now an independent performance consultant. Before that, he worked in F1 for McLaren amongst other positions. I'm really looking forward to talking to Paul today about what organizations can learn from F1 about high performance culture. So welcome, Paul. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Matt. Absolute pleasure. So we'll be talking today about your views on company culture, including the challenges that you faced at F1, what you did about it, and the lessons that you've learned and the lessons that we can take from F1 and uh, share them with with other types of organizations. But just to start, it would be good to know a little bit more about your story and your background. Yeah, well, thanks. And uh, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. And I haven't always worked in F1. I've, I've done about seven years working with McLaren. Um, but before that, I've done everything from sausage making through to banking. Um, I've worked in uh, food manufacturing for a lot of that time, both as a production manager and um, as a consultant as well. Um, I just spent a bit of time in shipping, international shipping, moving containers around the world. Um, so I've had a very varied career, but the connecting thread has always been about helping people perform. So I've taken that um, mindset of manufacturing, which is my sort of my trade, should we say, my degree back in the day in manufacturing engineering and the improvement approach that manufacturing take and traditionally started off um, moving in a, a traditional manner in the manufacturing space. But as my careers progressed, I moved that into more of the corporate environment, uh, brought that into banking in a different service industry. Um, before moving back to the UK. So in the banking and another role that I did for five years was in uh, New Zealand. So I spent some time living and working out there and then moved back to the UK to work for McLaren, um, which was an opportunity that came about serendipitously, as these things often do, um, and had some amazing experiences working McLaren. And then more recently, I've uh, gone independent. So, yeah, that's been my journey. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. And I'm I'm curious how you got from sausage making to uh to to F1. I don't think I've ever heard <laughs> anyone in the I don't think I've ever met anyone in the sausage making business before. So congratulations <laughs> on being the first. <laughs> There's not many of us that have taken that route. I'll, uh, I'm sure. But uh, no, my as I say, my um, training was in manufacturing. Um, mm. I the first job that I took out of university was actually with a place that re- repaired and overhauled airplane engine parts. Right. And it was a graduate role and a performance improvement role within that organization. Mm. Um, And it turned out that there wasn't really a graduate scheme there. They hadn't Mm. really Mm. brought it all together. They just brought some graduates in. And Mm. then once every few months, they'd get them together and have a jolly. And so I was interested in a more developmental graduate scheme and went and looked externally and said, right, how do we build one? Mm. If we haven't got one already, I'm going to help you build one. So work with the HR team there to actually look external to say who's doing this stuff really well. Mm. Uh, what can we learn and what would a, a graduate scheme look like in this organization? By the time we'd actually got that together, I realized that my time as a graduate <laughs> was pretty much over. Um, and so therefore, I wasn't going to be getting the benefit out of that scheme. 
And one of the organizations that I saw that was doing this stuff really well was a company called Kerry Foods. Mm-hmm. And they, um, amongst other things, make sausages. And I ended right. up in their, their factory in, in Manchester on their graduate scheme um, doing production management. I had some amazing experiences with some wonderful people in that space. And then as my career progressed, the sort of I've always been one for what's the opportunity in front of me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I moved from the sausage making to a shipping role um that was in liverpool um with a company that was organizing the transport of containers to and from shipping ports who were looking for somebody to help them improve their processes Mm -hmm. and it was only through a random connection that that opportunity came about it looked interesting Uh, you know right i'll take it i'll see what's what yeah did that for a while and then again through another random connection an opportunity came to work with a small consultancy that focused on food manufacturing in particular. Mm. So that took me in that space. And then after five years living on the road and realizing that, you know, uh, leaving at 4 a.m. on a Monday and getting Mm. home at 8 p.m. on a Friday isn't ideal. um, Then the wife and I decided we're actually going to move over to New Zealand. And so we took uh, took an opportunity again in New Zealand. My sister was living there, went over to New Zealand and said, I'm going to knock on some doors while I'm here. And one of the companies I knocked at Fonterra, a big dairy company, mm. biggest employer, certainly at the time. And I literally went in to the front desk and said, this is who I am. Would I be able to speak to anyone because I'm here in country? Mm-hmm. Can we arrange something? It was just before Christmas and it was one of those wind down times. And someone from HR said, yeah, well, yeah let's have a chat. And we sat down and had a coffee. And then a couple of months later, they contacted and said, yeah, we've got a role for you if you're interested. And took that role, moved over to New Zealand, and it was being made redundant from that role that um, really got me thinking about what can I do next. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking at all the opportunities that were out there. I had some great coaching, which I always encourage people to do, particularly in those mm. times of flux. Mm. And um, an opportunity was there for, to work with a bank in their business banking team, helping with, again, performance improvement role. And so I had no experience in banking. Um, I'd spent a lot of money on credit cards. That's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. And um, and yeah, so I I took a took a real risk and said, let's do this. Um, and I took that role. And and one of the things I often talk about is I deliberately took the sausage making experience into banking. Right. And I said, T- tell you... me more. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I found in that banking world was the way in which they were measuring and managing performance. Mm. of their people mm. um was around how many dollars have you lent it was very much a, the more dollars you lend the better it is therefore your bonuses are based on that and that then generates behaviors that drive yes. Yes. Uh, uh, you know um, drive the results within that business now when it comes to business banking and small business as it was in new zealand you've got business loans you've got home loans because a lot of people do home loans for second homes out there credit cards, um, all sorts of different products that are there. But everything has been measured on dollars. Mm. And so a typical a typical business loan might be $50,000. It's complex to do. It takes a long time. And so as a business banker, 
covertly or, or overtly, what I want to do to you as a customer is to say, now you don't want a, a business loan. What you want is a mortgage for five hundred thousand mm, mm. dollars, and we'll structure things so that it goes through the house and it, you know, it, it, all this behaviour that the customer doesn't actually want that, mm, but mm. because you're be, you're bonused on how many dollars you can lend, mm, mm. it was driving those behaviours. Yeah. And one of the things from the manufacturing world and the sausage world is if I've got sausage A, which might be a, a standard, you know, high volume, easy to make product, I measure it against standard A. Mm, if I've mm. got product B, which is a premium sausage that takes a lot more care, it's got different packaging, I manage it against standard B. So I might want 100 packs a minute on standard A and only 50 on, stand, on, on product mm, B. Mm, mm. So I measure myself against those different standards. And I took that approach into the world of banking to say, how long should it take you from a productivity perspective to mm, to, um, mm. to produce a business loan? So it might take you, let's say, um, eight hours of, of working time. From a mortgage, it might be two hours. So there's no point in comparing the two on a dollar basis. You need to compare them on the effort that's there, mm, mm, plus mm. layering on, is that what the customer needs? Mm. I, I tell you what, yeah. you must have been one of the only people in, in the history of the world <laughs> to take lessons from the sausage making industry and put it into banking. But I think um, there's a powerful message there in terms of ev even when you least expect it, there are some huge business lessons to be had from completely different sectors. Um, yeah. And it sounds like from across your story, one of the, the only things that's one of the main things that sort of permeated through all of your experiences is this focus on um, performance improvement, right? Yep. So you're into performance improvement, I'm into culture. The question is, how important do you think culture is for an organization's performance? Um, beyond vital, I would say. It's, it, it is what is needed for performance. If you haven't got the culture there, then you won't get sustainability of, mm. of performance. And that, that's the reality. You can drive individual elements. You can put a project in place and you can get results. Um, a lot, Certainly in the early days, the consultancy work that I was doing in food manufacturing, it, it was, it's moved on a lot since, but it was what I would call size 10 consulting, which is you mm. go in with your big boots and you tell people what to do and you kick them in the, uh, in the regions. And you you say this is what you need to do, and it mm. gets change and it gets performance done. Mm, mm. What it doesn't do is make sustainable change, mm, and mm. and that's where the culture comes in. Is if you if you haven't built that culture for why it's important to change, why it's important to improve, mm, mm. then people will just fall back to their their old ways of working, and that's yeah. the, the people on it. I totally agree. I mean, I'm biased, but I, I do agree. And a little bugbear of mine is when I see these big consultancies telling organizations that they're going to transform them and they're going to create sustainable shifts and all these things. And I just, I'm incredibly skeptical because I think only the organization itself can change that. And mm. you as an external consultant, I think can can provide advice, um, feedback, you can coach them along the process, but only they can can change their culture um which is what's required for the actual sustainable behavior shift over time yeah so um f1 is often heralded as as a bit of a sort of high performance culture 
uh, type industry. So yeah. it would be good to understand from your perspective, what are the, the cultural traits that you think has got F1 its name as a, as a high performance culture type sector? Um, I think one of the things is the pace of change. Um, you know, I, I often talk about the sort of heartbeat of a business and how often, you know, what is it you're making? What is the, the cadence of your industry? Because mm. that drives the the desire to change at a, a certain pace. Like when you're making sausages and you're getting orders on one day for that <laughs> yeah. day, you've yeah. got to react pretty quickly. So you've got to be fairly nimble and it drives that permeates into the business. If you're doing aeroplane engine parts in those early days with a hundred day turnaround time, mm it's a slow treacly movement and that permeates into the business. And I think there's all, there are things that leaders can do to influence that as well, but you know, maybe that's a topic we can, we can talk about either now or a different time, but the world of F1, you have to perform performance is there. It's clear. It's on mm. the TV. It's in front of everybody on a week to week basis. And so you, the culture that it drives is passion for the industry. Mm. And it drives a culture of whatever it takes to get that next level of performance through. Mm. What, we, what are we going to do? Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting that one of the things I've heard there is people feel a passion for the industry and probably a sense of pride because their product is being seen and enjoyed on the TV each day. Yes. And I do wonder the extent to which that might be true in retail, because I don't think I see it. People working in a retail um, environment, but I'm not sure that the same pride there as an example and going, oh, these closed, I contributed in in X way yeah. to them. That maybe there is, but I'm I wonder how organisations can draw that link um, as it as it is so clear in in the F1 world. It's um, there's a couple of examples that I've I've seen in the past that have really hit home. Mm. Um, in the dairy company in New Zealand, for instance, there's a they were making uh, milk powders was one of their core things and and which would go into baby formula mm. and and various other things and, and what they would do is the people whose day-to-day -day job was just making powder and putting it mm. into a bag and mm. they would have to they'd remind them put reminders around the place but also do things like let's get some people in and get some stories in place and talk about what does this really mean your product is going to feed these people and if you if we didn't have this it this is what it would mean to me um and my, my dad um has been through various bits of uh um of issues with cancer and treatment and his recovery and all the rest of it and been on trials and one of the most powerful things he did off the back of that was he, he recorded a short message that was played back to the people who were doing the trials mm. which is you know this is who I am. This is the impact it's had on my life. And it's your trial and the results of that trial has allowed me to go off and go walking in, in the Maldives, uh, oh, sorry, in the um, uh, uh, in, somewhere in, in Europe with my wife and enjoy my life and be out there. Mm -hmm. If I didn't have, if I hadn't, hadn't have had that, mm -hmm. then I would be in a very different place. And that means the world to me. Now, when you're doing a trial and you've got numbers in front of you and maybe some, you know, maybe some pharmaceuticals that you're playing with under, you don't connect what you're doing with the end customer. Mm -hmm. And if you can just share those stories and connect it with people, um, then it, it, it suddenly it's like, oh, this is why we're doing it. Mm -hmm. This is this is why it's important that we get this stuff right. Yeah. You know?
why, yeah, why does I, quality matter because i'm going to be talked about a number on a day-to-day -day basis well it, it can motivate people but quality matters because your milk powder goes into these products and these are the babies look at the babies <laughs> look mm. them in the eye and tell them that you're willing to uh, to do a bad uh, job on quality tomorrow yeah it's like yeah you know, that's the thing that connects people's hearts and minds yeah it's tr it's making the link between what people are doing every day and and the and the end outcome much more visible and salient yeah. and i wonder the extent to which that's isn't happening actually in a lot of businesses today because people are, for example, working on an Excel file or they're sat at their desk working on a PowerPoint and it's not immediately obvious to them. Hold on a minute. What, why am I doing this? What is this contributing towards? Mm. And it sounds like that's something that in F1 and in those examples you provided, there's that clearer line of sight between what you're doing every day and, yeah. and why you're doing it. So I've, I've heard a few things then in terms of the, the F1 culture. So one is around the pace of change. Yep. One's around clear, measurable outcomes and success. One's around um, having a clear line of sight between what you're doing every day and what's it, what it's contributing towards. Yep. Um, what were the sorts of things that you that F1 organizations struggle with? Um, I think they struggle with because I think they've got better over the years and certainly since I, I joined, I think I've heard stories of me uh, pre me joining, which was sort of 2015 sort of time um, mm -hmm. and stories of, you know, of where it's gone to now and where it's moving to. Mm. Historically, what they've really struggled with is almost the performance at any cost and any human cost being within that. You know, it's like you will stay up 20 hours in the day and you'll do this and then you'll do it again and then you'll mm. do it again and that will mm. become the norm mm. there's a difference between we've hit a specific problem and i really you know i really need this team to come together or i really need some individuals to just put in that extra bit of work because we've got this tight time frame mm. and we will pay that back in some way or we will allow make sure that we go back to the norm mm. whereas historically it's very much been that uh, um sort of macho the more longer hours I work, the better. Um, you know, whatever I do, you know, it's it's there. And I will ask as a leader, I will ask everything of my people, no matter mm. what impact it has. Mm. Um, I think it's moving a lot more towards the things now, which is actually what's the impact on you. Mm. And partly mm. from a, you know, from a human perspective and from a cultural, uh, that's a nice place to work and you get mm. um, you get more engagement there. But don't forget, it's not all altruistic, you know, that delivers more sustainable performance. Mm, mm. People, if people burn out, you lose their performance and you have to invest in getting more experience and all the rest of it. So it's, there is a, if you're a hard minded business uh, approach to this, then there is a business reason for driving that sort of culture of care and mm. the culture of, of support for people because you will get better performance. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think that the shift that you've described there is probably fairly reflective of what a lot of organizations have been going through themselves in the last mm. 20, 30 years. We've seen this increasing shift towards a focus on inclusion and well-being and anti-burnout, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so, so I think sort of F1 is sort of it sounds like moving, moving in the same direction as lots of organizations. Um, I in terms of the um the the types of things that you think lots 
lots of organizations could take from the world of F1 in mm. terms of a high performance culture, in yep. terms of the good bits, what would you say they are? Um, so one of the uh, little sayings that I came across while there is talked about decisions at the point of most knowledge. So historically, again, you would probably have the most senior person in the business mm. making the decisions in the moment. It's like the, uh, there's a story of, I think it's Fernando Alonso's car. It's out on the track. Something's wrong. Race is about to start. You've got three minutes to fix the car. Mm. And you've got an engineer literally underneath the car trying to fix it. Historically, you'd have leaders going, you know, literally trying to go out and fix it themselves and wow. telling people what to do. And you're like, this is this is how to solve that problem. I've got mm. the experience. Mm. Mm. Um, but what it moved towards was actually, I want the decisions to be made at the point of most knowledge. Mm. And at the moment, the person with the most knowledge as to what to do and how to fix it is under that car. Mm. So as a leader, my role in driving that, if that's the culture that I want, mm. firstly, I've got to make sure that those people have the knowledge that they need. But I've also got to demonstrate to them and repeatedly demonstrate to them that I trust them to make a decision. I might challenge their decision. I might see what we can learn and could have done better but I will allow them to make those decisions in the moment. Because if you don't, then as a leader, you're not leading, you are doing. Mm, mm. And, and so those things I think are, are really important. And that's one that usually hits home a lot with people is actually, what am I doing? You know, if, am I leading here or am I just mm. telling people what to do? Mm. There's a big difference. It's interesting because I think, um, a lot of people get into leadership pose uh, positions because they like being in control and mm. um, they've been in control in many different situations and because they've exercised their control they've done well but ironically everything you're saying is actually about letting go of mm. control in the right moments and knowing that your what you should be looking to control is do you have the right people with the right knowledge you know you are you trusting them and letting go and coaching mm. them? That is now your role. Your role is not to get underneath the car anymore. Yeah. But that, I imagine, feels really hard mm. for leaders who perhaps, yeah, aren't used to, to doing that, right? Yeah, definitely. And uh, and there's actually another element of that story where the leader from McLaren at the time was standing in the pits with a um, a sponsor partner. Mm. And you know, that sponsor partner was, was saying, what are you doing? You know, what, why aren't you out there? I'd be screaming. You know, you seem mm. really calm. Mm. Mm. And it was, was that lesson of, look, this isn't my job. Mm. My job is to make sure up when these things happen, because they will. We know these problems mm. will happen. Mm. We'll do our mm. best to, uh, you know, I'll put in the processes in place to make sure we prevent them from happening wherever possible. But when they do happen, I want my people to know that they've got the power to make those decisions and do what's what. Mm -hmm. So my job is not now because mm. I've, it's too late. And actually interesting, another element they said was um, my job in that moment as a leader is to look for the eyes. I've got a team of people who are going through a high pressure, highly important piece of change. Where do the eyes naturally go to in that, in, in that team? And they might be looking to the most junior member, they might be looking at somebody who's in a um, a completely different role to what's going on, but they're physically looking to somebody for support and guidance. And those are the leaders in your organization. And mm. so as a as a leader, 
one of your roles is to identify future leaders and identify the natural leaders mm. because you can that's something in there already that you can enhance mm-hmm. and so that's, yeah it's an interesting one i've never heard that look look mm. for the eyes it makes me um think about a professional golfer who is in a really high high pressure high performance situation and right. um he he told a story about how he looked over at his coach and a lot of people in that moment would look over at the coach and they would look like they're equally as stressed and they are you know you know make the part make the part mm. and he looked over at the coach and the coach just looked him back in the eyes and just smiled and just looked really calm and all that did was just put him at ease and go right. I'm here I can do this I'm all right and yeah. um just those su- that subtle look of comfort actually yeah. um sort of really helped him so anyway that's that's what the look for the eyes um <laughs> uh, uh little idiom uh, brought up for me nice. so um it, you, you mentioned this decisions at the point of most knowledge point yeah in terms of something that you think a lot of organizations can learn from F1. So yeah. how well do you think organizations are doing that at the current time? Um, not very in general, When I, from the organizations that I see, mm. you know, there's still that element of control that people want. Um, and it's, it's probably most relevant in uh, middle management you know, is it, that's a difficult transition to make from, you know, being a very good doer to being mm. a, a manager and a leader. Um, and so being able to let go and to be able to realize what your role is and what your role isn't is a, a, a key piece in that moment. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think that, that those elements of just being clear, and I think that that's one of the elements that I really like is those sayings, things like look for the eyes or decisions at the point of most knowledge. Mm. Culture is driven a lot by language, mm. and it's the repeated language that you use that often drives that culture. And the and idioms play a really important part in that as well. Mm. So if you mm. there's a lot in the armed forces, Navy SEALs, are, you know, all, all those sorts of guys. That it's like, what's the little phrase that's going to mean something to you and your team, mm. and maybe mm. your team only won't mean anything to anybody else unless mm. you explain mm. it behind it. But for you in that moment, it's like you're looking for the eyes here. Mm, mm. and then that you know that's that little challenge that's that nod and the moment of, of yeah you're right this is we've we've agreed what we we're going to do this isn't my role you're right let me step back so, and that, that ability to ground yourself and, and step back it's almost like a code phrase i also wonder so you're you're talking about how language can be really powerful in shaping mm. culture and i totally agree and i would also add and say sometimes that um the language can be indicative of um uh, the, the challenges that, that an organization is facing. And sometimes it can be really subtle, I think. So um, if you hit, one of the things that's often said is, you know, oh, that's that's my side of desk role. That's what I'm doing side of desk. Right. And what message does that send about how there's an expectation that you have a side of desk job on top of your job? Therefore, mm. what does that say about the culture? Equally, if people are or aren't saying they're stressed, if then if, if if stress has become a dirty word in your culture, yeah. what what does what might that actually mean? It might tell you that your organization isn't actually as open as you say you are to people when you know they're being vulnerable and asking for help. Mm. So I totally agree that language and the language around culture can be 
really powerful for, for better or or for worse i guess yeah yeah definitely so um i'm really curious to hear about a little bit more about some more of the things that you've taken from f1 and successfully implemented in in an organizational setting because i think a lot of people listening in might be saying well f1's great but it's completely different in a big business where you're selling something completely different so yeah. it'd be great to hear some sort of real case examples of some f1 stories or or, or tools that have really landed landed well mm. Yeah, and um, I'll often preface, uh, preface, uh, preface. Not sure what the word is. Uh, the word um, this here in that I wouldn't call myself an F1 fan. Mm. And one of the things we often come across is, you know, you're talking about F1. That's completely different. Um, but what I've been a fan of, and the, what what interested me in the first place, was the high performance element of what they do. Mm. Mm. So you don't have to be a fan of the sport in order to take the learnings. Mm. It's the same. You know, you can take learnings from anywhere as long as you identify this is what it's going to be uh, beneficial to me and my team and my organization mm. so therefore i'm not necessarily interested in being uh, you know at the the race itself watching your favorite driver go around but what i want to do is understand how do you do this stuff what mm. can i learn and how can i adapt it and adopt it yes so th so there's two key things that come to mind really one is um there's a counterintuitive element to how a data-driven organization like McLaren, because it is highly data-driven, approaches data. And one of the, and this is a something that I take to a lot of clients at the moment is mm. um if you want to be data-driven, put data last. Now, okay. What, Tell me what I, what I see in a lot of organizations is you've got the IT team or somebody going, right, here's a new system that's going to give us all this new data. I've seen it in factories where they've spent millions on new equipment that gives you with servo motors that tell you if they're up or down or wearing at a certain point. Or I've seen it in, in um, service industries where they're spending all this money on creating more and more data on the assumption that that's going to lead to performance. Mm. And all too often what it leads to is people drowning in data yes. <laughs> and struggling with what to do. And so one of the counterintuitive lessons that I took from my time at McLaren was start with the results that you're trying to drive. What are we trying to do here? What's the performance that we want? Um, and it's not just a case of we want to win. We want to have be profitable. You've also got to consider the elements of those results as well. So what's the strategic guidelines that we want here? We, you know, we've got a strong focus on sustainability. So We've got to have results and sustainability. We've got to have results and fan engagement. You know, so it's not just a case of winning the race. You've that gets you the immediate results, but it's the fan engagement. It's the the sustainability element that's going to make you have longevity in that sport. Mm -hmm. And so once you've clarified what that means to your organization, you've then got what are the actions? What are the things that you can do about that? What are the mm -hmm. levers at your uh, disposal? And that can be as simple as, you know, the policies that you have in place, um, the way in which the processes that you um, that you have, the way in which you measure and manage people's performance, all, all of these things that you can do as a business that impact the results that you're trying to drive. But it's mm. got to be related. You've got to understand the results first and relate it mm. back. Mm. The next level is about people. So who are the people involved in those actions? 
making the decisions, implementing those decisions. And there's a whole raft of things around the people thing that you can look at, you know, um, setting up teams, um, being effective teams or, or some wonderful stuff there. Mm. But it's the next level down that starts to get really interesting, which is insights. What are the insights that my people need to make the best decisions on the actions that drive the results? And insights are bits of data and information pulled together in a certain way and mm. presented so that they support the decision. They don't make the decision because that is automation, but it's that here's three options and the pros and cons of those options in this situation. Mm. Mm. Um, and that that's, that's an insight. Um, mm. And then the final level is data. So what's the smallest data set to drive those insights? And mm. that comes about from if you want more data on a car, that comes with additional weight for sensors and telemetry and things. Mm. Therefore, it has a negative impact on performance. Mm. Mm. So you've got to think about things in a different way. And that yeah. rapid, rapid performance, as I call it, is there. So it sounds like, to use a really pragmatic example, if if somebody is creating, let's say, a report of all the data mm. available to them on something, yeah. Actually, the data comes last. The data is in the references or the appendices. And actually, the report is that is becomes a we're trying to achieve this. We need to give these people this data to help them to make X decisions. Uh, here's the insight that the data is telling us, the big things that you need to take from this data. And then yeah. the data comes last. So people don't get overwhelmed with all the all the data and the things that they could take from it. Is that is that a fair summary? Definitely. And, and you've one of the things that um, you know the approach you can take if you want to take a simple model because I'm a simple man myself <laughs> you've got what so what and now what and right. those for me line up with data information and insights so the data is the what it's the you know we had 27 sales last month mm, mm. well okay so what well mm. the plan was for 50 sales last month mm. so we're under target okay mm. so I've got some context well now mm. what Mm. And we've identified that the reason for that was that our marketing material wasn't hitting home in that space. So mm. now we recommend that you, you know, we address that marketing uh, messaging in the in that particular channel. Right. I've got something that, you know, or we could spend some more on training mm. or we could mm. do this. Mm. But the day, you know, the, this is where the insight says, if you do this, it's likely to have the impact that you want. Mm, um, mm. and and there could that that can be options. It's not just the one thing. It can be options in front of people as well. I've I've not heard that before. What so what mm. and now what? I really like mm. that. And and if that could replace the eighty three page reports that I'm sometimes sent <laughs> yeah. uh, and 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 uh, made to read, uh, that would be amazing because I think I'd much I could take meaning much more quickly and easily from that. Um, and that'll then help me and others obviously to make better decisions. So um so out of all of these things that you're um that you're sharing with me in terms of uh the lessons you've taken from F1 and perhaps what you could take into an organizational setting what uh, what would you describe as as the perhaps the one big myth or the or the biggest mistakes that many organizations uh make around culture um i think there's probably a myth particularly at the middle management level, maybe at a high level as well, that the culture is what it is mm. and that we can't influence it. 
and if it you know if it's not where we want it to be then we can you know tweak it a little bit but the cult that's the culture in this organization that's the way we do things that's always the case mm-hmm. but actually that for me is a is a myth that can be de- debunked relatively easily which is go out and try something new and see what what's what and learn from mm-hmm. it and experiment mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. I, I think there's a couple of things that come to mind. One is um, this term epic. Every every person impacts culture. Um, right. And and another thing is every when I think what when you're in a social situation, you are you're listening to people and you're looking at what's done. And mm. each of those things sends a signal about what's valued, what isn't valued. And so in that regard, everything you say and everything you do will send a signal to other people around what the culture is and what's valued. Yeah. So I totally agree that if enough people start taking responsibility and say, I impact culture, I have a role to play. And in, in what they're saying and doing, they're trying to be purposeful around sending the right signals around what 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 we stand for and what it's about to work here. Mm-hmm. Um, eventually, things will start to change. Mm-hmm. And I do, I agree with you insofar as often it's that the middle management um, who have some some power and some responsibility, but it's, I, I hear, I often hear, well, this is, that's, you know, this is senior leaders problem. It's, it's their fault um, as opposed to taking responsibility. So I totally agree. Um, and what about um, a culture hack that you love? So something that, you know, takes a little effort or, but something that can also have a big impact at the same time. Um, there's a couple that come to mind, really. Um, I think the one that I'll bring is how, as a leader, you celebrate success. And if you can go about understanding that, not the results that you're trying to drive necessarily, but how you want them driven. Mm. So if if I go back about that sustainability or that fan engagement, I'm go as a leader, I'm going to be very vocal and very uh, celebratory. Mm. about where even if it hasn't driven the results yet if mm. i see somebody doing some great fan engagement i'm mm. making it loud and proud that that's the thing that's brilliant to see have you seen this everybody this is the sort of mm. fan engagement we want to bring in this is the sort of sustainability piece that we want mm. and mm. people will recognize that people are being rewarded and mm. recognized in themselves for doing those things and not just for the results the results yes. will come yes um, yes. But yeah, if you want to drive that cultural element, you've got to celebrate how things are being done as well mm. as what's being done as well. I love that. And it's something I saw last night, actually. Um, so I, I play very, very amateur level of cricket, something I don't it, there isn't a high performance culture in, in it at all. <laughs> um, but um, if someone played a good shot or the shot had a good outcome, people yeah. would say great shot. I, I had a challenge with it because I said, well, you're not going to keep getting away with that because how you're playing the shot will get you out. So mm. if we focus instead on what you're doing, regardless of the result, mm. the results will then follow if you continue to show the right technique, do the right thing. And I think that's something I I hear a lot of in elite sport. They differentiate between personal performance and results. Mm. And the focus is on personal performance with the recognition that results are somewhat out of your control yep. and um if you focus on performance the right results will 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 come so i really like that if you're a manager if you're a leader praise people for how they're doing things their yep. performance not just the outcomes because if you're promoting the right behaviors 
the right results will come. So Very I love that. Sense. Sounds good. Thank you. Um, just as we, I'm conscious of, we could talk about this all day. Uh, I'm conscious <laughs> sure of your time and the listeners' time. I, I, I'm just curious, do you have any final reflections on our conversation or anything else that you'd like to add? Um, no, I think the there's a wonderful element of, you know, recognizing that you whatever position you are in the organization mm. you can drive culture you can do something that impacts that culture and if you're a leader who wants to make deliberately make a difference and deliberately point the culture in one direction or another then there are things that you can do about it and i think that's a wonderful piece about what you do and, and how you do it really is uh supporting that everybody every person impacts culture there you go it's a it's that element of you all play a role in that cultural element. Absolutely. And it's about taking responsibility for that as well and not saying, oh, yeah. it's HR's responsibility <laughs> yes, uh, exactly. or it's the senior leader's responsibility. Awesome. Well, thank you so much to you, Paul, for sharing your time and your experiences. I really appreciate your time today. Um, so I think that's uh, probably all we've got time for. So um, if you did like this episode, please do listen to our other episodes for for more first-hand experiences and lessons on all things culture. Alternatively, please do contact me at matt at clickculture.co.uk. Otherwise, that's all for today. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks again, Paul, and go well, everybody.